0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech, and it is Friday. That means it's time for a classic episode. This episode, originally published on March 5th, 2014, It is titled The History of Handheld Gaming Part 2, and if part two is throwing you for a loop, listen to last Friday's classic episode, because that is, surprise, surprise, part one. So let's listen in on this classic episode. The two video game systems that we're about to talk about, because they were essentially the same thing, but branded under two different names, uh, they did not make the same impact on the market that the Game Gear did. They did... Get some popularity in Europe and South America, not in North America as far as I can tell. But these two systems, which again were pretty much the same thing, were branded the Mega Duck and Cougar Boy. Those sound like the worst
1: superheroes ever.
0: Mega Duck and Cougar Boy, fighting <laughs> crime since nineteen ninety-three. <1993. laughs> yeah. Um again, they're they're cartridge-based, handheld uh-huh. video game systems. Nothing nothing particularly notable about them other than the fact that I thought their names were adorable. Yeah,
1: yeah. If, if, if you haven't heard of them, um, you're in pretty good company, especially here in North America. I don't think they ever came to yeah, this market. They were mostly so. in um, Europe and South America, yep, actually.
0: yep. yep. Brazil uh, actually produced some, thus Cougar Boy. But uh, yeah, so Megaduck, apparently very popular in the Netherlands and Germany. By the way, if any of you own any of the game systems, particularly the, uh, the more obscure ones that we're talking about, I welcome you to share a picture of oh, you yeah. holding the handheld game system and share it on our Facebook wall, and we will uh, totally comment on those.
1: Yeah, or or if you if you give us permission to, we will we will push it along to our to our other yeah
0: like the tumblers and, and, the yeah, and the twitters yeah things yeah because uh, you know I I uh, have owned a couple of handheld gaming systems back in the day, but I never got my hands on a Mega Duck or a Cougar Boy.
1: I I never owned a handheld. Huh. Wow.
0: Learning something new about Lauren here. Actually, the only one besides the, the, you know, I mentioned that I had a, uh, a football or a football two from Mattel Electronics. At least I think I did. I know I played one. I assume that I owned it. That was back when I was a little kid. Uh, the only one that I can remember owning and it wasn't that long ago when I got it, it was a Game Boy Advance. And we'll talk about that in this episode a little bit later.
1: Um Moving on to 1995, that is when Sega released The Nomad, which yeah. was a handheld version of the Genesis.
0: Right. So the fact that it could actually play Genesis games meant that it had a big leg up over the competition because it already had an established library to pull from.
1: Oh, sure. Uh, however, the, the the form factor of those game cartridges meant that this thing was pretty huge. Yeah,
0: it was really Really bulky, not easy for it. Like, you, it was called a handheld, but sort of in the same way that early laptops were called laptop computers. But if you were to actually put it on your lap, you might crush your legs. Kind of similar to that. Also, um, from what I understand, it, you, you could only play for a very short while before it drained all the batteries and you had to replace them. So, uh, in fact, so much so that I remember that for some of these devices, including this one, one of the peripherals that was, uh, that was launched shortly after the system debuted, would be little ac adapters for a car. Oh, right. Like a car adapter so that you could actually play in the car without the batteries dying after half an hour. So, not terribly popular uh, partly also because Sega had this issue about releasing a whole bunch of different video game consoles within a relatively short amount of time and those consoles were mostly incompatible with each other.
1: Uh, yeah, within like 7 years they had released at least 3 and and that's yeah, it's a lot. Cutting it, down on your own market is yeah. never really the best idea.
0: Yeah, it ended up saturating the market quite a bit. And so it, that also hurt them in the long run. Uh, 1997. This is an interesting one. It's the Game.com was um, the name of it.
1: Right, by Tiger Electronics. And this was a, a handheld device. And remember, this is 1997 that had Internet connectivity yes, built in.
0: Specifically, you could do things like check your email or read... Web pages in text.
1: Uh, yeah, you couldn't play games online. No, uh, it, the 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 internet functions were more for. It, it was also kind of this dual function PDA sort of thing because PDAs were so big in nineteen ninety seven. Yeah,
0: personal digital assistants for those who don't remember. Right. Yeah, so this is uh, that was what we called smartphones before there were phones in them.
1: <laughs> uh like many other PDAs of the time, it had a monochrome screen Yep. whereas everything else coming out at this point had a color screen so that that injured it definitely yeah, in the marketplace. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. And uh you know, it's it kind of
0: uh, still kind of a cool idea but apparently the games were also not very good or some people would say Incredibly bad, <laughs> and so uh, uh,
1: it did have a touchscreen, which which was pretty innovative for, yeah. for the time for games. Anyway, yeah. again, PDAs frequently had them, right? But gaming systems did not. So
0: this is you know marking two things that would become popular in future game systems: the touchscreen and the internet connectivity. So it was a little ahead of its time. It was it was an ambitious product. Uh, ultimately was a not successful. A huge failure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> something that was not a failure uh, uh, one year later in 1998, uh, and, and this, was, this was a decade after their last big one, Nintendo released the Game Boy Color, and that was the, the, the first real update to the Game Boy. Yeah. I mean, there had been that those few others that we talked about in Where the Where the form factor first had episode. changed a little, but, uh-huh. but the,
0: the guts of the Game Boy had remained largely the same since it had debuted. There had not been a major overhaul apart from some of the aesthetics of the actual case itself. Uh, this is where we finally get to a br- a brand new kind of technology where we get color screens on Game Boys. Uh, so no more monochromatic Tetris, unless you're actually playing an old Game Boy cartridge. Because one of the nice things about it was that it was backwards compatible. Right. So if you bought a Game Boy Color, you didn't have to worry about well, now I have to. Now all
1: these games are useless, yeah. and I have to have two devices with me if I want to. Nope, you can play anything you want. Yeah,
0: Nintendo was really good about being backwards compatible with a few of its different uh, consoles. Not all of them, but so much enough so that whenever you had a console come out, whether it was handheld or otherwise, that was not backwards compatible, people got upset because oh, they they got used to it. So, uh, but this one definitely in that philosophy did not have a backlit screen just like the original Game Boy. So, again, that meant that the battery consumption was uh, modest. Sure. So sure. It, it wouldn't die within half an hour, unlike the uh, Sega Nomad. So, uh, And then also that same year in 1998, another company called Neo Geo released the Neo Geo Pocket in Japan, which was a monochromatic handheld video game system. It didn't do very well, but in 1999, they released the Neo Geo Pocket Color, or NGPC, which ended up being a uh, device that the company would sell around the world. It wasn't just a Japanese product.
1: Uh, yeah, it was a pretty good competitor to to the Game Boy Color.
0: Yeah, it was less expensive than the Nintendo device. Uh, it was also power efficient, just like the Game Boy Color was. But ultimately, Nintendo's biggest advantage was, again, that amazing library of games Neo Geo had some great games, but, but Nintendo had a ton of them.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, and, and Neo Geo's strength and development was was certainly in the console market at the time.
0: Yeah. So that moves us up to 1999. That's when uh Bandai, which was really known for those uh handheld hard-coded LCD-based games, the ones that would be like, you know, uh, uh licensed after a particular product or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh it was really known for those, the ones that weren't any kind of cartridge-based games, that's when they released the WonderSwan, which was a monochromatic gaming device, and it was designed by... By Gunpei Yokoi. Yeah, the same guy who designed the Game Boy, the original Game Boy. So, this was a notable entry in that it was designed by one of the, the most successful, most influential designers of the handheld gaming industry. Uh,
1: right, and it was also the exclusive mobile platform at the time for the Final Fantasy series,
0: which was really huge, I mean, mostly in Japan. Yeah, in fact, the, this game console never really got popular anywhere other than Japan. It was never sold in the United States. Uh, even after they updated it, they updated it a couple times. They had the Wonder Swan color, and then by night, by 2002, rather, they came out with the Swan Crystal. Uh, I've seen pictures of them. Uh, I don't know how you were gonna play games on these. He's like there was one that I, it looked like it had two directional pads on the same side of the game console. There's another one of those where it had the screen in the middle and the controls are on either side, but one side had a directional pad. Laid out on top of another directional pad, or at least that's what it looked like to me. The picture was not terribly great quality, and I've never seen one of these in person.
1: If anyone has has one, send us a picture. Yeah,
0: or send us one. You know, <laughs> if you've got an extra one, you can just send us one, that's fine. Uh, send sure. us some games too, because otherwise it's just not gonna, I mean, it'll be pretty to look at, but, uh, yeah, so oh, anyway. You,
1: you can't, you can't program your own cartridge games for... No.
0: I don't have that kind of spare time. Nineteen
1: ninety nine. Do you consoles? really want
0: to see a game that I have programmed?
1: <laughs> I it'll it'll just be made entirely of puns. It'll I do not want to see that. Renaissance at
0: all. Festival, the game. would be what it would be. Um,
1: at any rate, a brief note uh, from the year two thousand. That is, uh, we started seeing a lot of retro nostalgia for for early games. I think uh, yeah. around this time that yep. that has been pervasive. I mean, not that not that nerds will have, have never not talked about things that they're really excited about from 20 years ago. Right. But, um, but this is the year that Mattel re-released its late seventies games, football and baseball.
0: And which, you know, it makes sense because the, the kids who got these as toys when they were kids, um, have now grown up. And are now able to purchase stuff on their own.
1: Speaking of that, in the year 2000, that, that is when Nintendo came out with the Game Boy Advance, which was its next big update to the Game Boy line.
0: Yeah, they actually launched it in 2001. They had been developing it for a while. And the, uh, this one ended up having a color screen. It had, uh, had uh, shoulder, um, buttons as well as the regular buttons that you had on the games. So that increased the things you could do with it. Uh I owned one of these at any rate um it was backwards compatible with game boy and game boy color cartridges, so that gave it a lot of utility mm-hmm. but it, you know the anything that was a game boy advanced game was way more uh uh pretty. sophisticated yeah and pretty <laughs> exactly you could you could do more stuff um and it had about the same amount of uh a uh, p- firepower, you could say, as
1: one of their former consoles. Uh, right. The SNES, the Super Nintendo yep. Entertainment System, which had debuted like like a decade earlier. And and I find it really impressive that miniaturization had had occurred to the point where in only 10 years you were able to pack this huge, bulky SNES into, a handheld, into a handheld.
0: Yeah. And uh, they would also update this line multiple times. Uh, so in 2003, Nintendo released a clamshell version of the Game Boy Advance, and then, uh, 2005, they released the Game Boy Advance Micro, which was a, a much smaller version of it. Because, yeah, that first one that came out was a bit, a bit clunky. Uh, that's the, the first version is the one that I have, by the way. I don't have the, the micro or the clamshell version. They also would even go on to offer a wireless adapter in 2004. So instead of using cables to connect your Game Boy Advance with someone else's machine, if you both had this wireless adapter, you could play games over wireless. Um. And so uh yeah very popular uh, also gave you some connectivity with the Nintendo GameCube so if you owned both the GameCube and a Game Boy Advance and you owned the the compatible titles you could have access to additional co- content on both
1: Uh right right you, you would hook it up by by a special cable and and Not that many games had this capacity, but but you could, you could access a little bit of of simultaneous content.
0: Yeah, you could, you could actually use your Game Boy Advance as a controller. Right, right. And it would display extra information inside the Game Boy Advance's uh, screen. So this kind of, it predates and it, and it foreshadows the Nintendo Wii U.
1: Which wouldn't come out for another decade.
0: Yeah, so the Wii U, I mean, we, you know, it's got that tablet based controller where you can get extra stuff on it. That, you know, that's obviously not a new idea. Nintendo had been playing with that idea for a while. Uh, also, in 2001, uh, over in Korea, there was a a company called Game Park that released the GP32 handheld gaming console, full color screen, typical kind of handheld, but it was a little bit different from the previous consoles we had seen.
1: Uh, yeah, this one was was really interesting because games were not stored on cartridges; they they used little flashcards.
0: Yeah, smart media flashcards, which meant that. Anyone could develop a game for this and then store it. As long as you knew how to program for this device, you could build a game for it or an application for it and store it on a smart media card and use it on the system. Because, you know, cartridges... That's hard to program for. You're t- talking about actual physical circuits you have to Media,
1: build. Media, right, right. Yeah, this is It's all... much more expensive. Um, so this was much easier to code for. It was a great boon to to independent developers who were interested in getting into it. Unfortunately, it also made things really easy to pirate.
0: Yeah, which made a lot of the uh, the established game companies say, you know, we're not going to develop for this because we don't want to have our stuff stolen everywhere. It doesn't make any sense for us to pour a lot of money into development, marketing, sales, all that kind of stuff only to see a handful of games go out before they're all pirated. So, uh didn't get a lot of support from the industry, but it was one of those things that really took off in the independent circle and the 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 emulator circle, the people who wanted to create uh, emulators that could play games based on other systems and then you would have one handheld console that could do practically anything. Uh, 2003, here's where we have one of our big flop stories. One of my favorites, actually. I remember when this came out. <laughs> the Nokia. Uh,
1: yeah, the, the, the N-Gage.
0: Yeah. So,
1: um, N-Gage, also
0: sometimes called the taco, uh, because it was vaguely taco-shaped. It kind of
1: taco-shaped.
0: And here's the crazy thing. Did you ever see anyone having to make a call on one of these things?
1: I never saw anyone
0: use one, period. Okay, so the, the speaker and the receiver on it, if you think of a taco, like a taco shell, the fold of the taco shell, like a hard, crispy taco. Gosh, I want tacos now. But uh if you think of the fold of the shell, the the speaker and the receiver were on the outside of that fold. Oh. So, so you actually so, so you're had the, holding yeah, like a like a taco out to the side of your face. Yes. That's it pretty did, awkward. It didn't sit flat against your face the edge was against your face so the, the it was enormous
1: okay okay so this was clever in in a way it, well, the concept was clever yeah. in the in the Nokia was a, a really dominant force in the cell phone business at the time and they were trying to make a, a cell phone that was also a handheld gaming system and and, hey, we, we have some things that are kind of like that today. Yeah, yeah. At the
0: time, that was before the smartphone revolution had really taken off. So this was a, a really uh, brand new kind of innovative, innovative idea. Oh,
1: sure, sure. Unfortunately, it was a terrible phone and a terrible gaming system.
0: Yeah. It, it really was awful at both things it was supposed to do. And so it did not get very far. It, there was uh, a sequel to the Engage, gauge which was more about... Uh, uh kind of a, a a game system like a game library that you could download to Nokia based phones
1: uh yeah yeah it uh, a couple years later it would it would release an update to the engage that was uh, better than the engage had been it was called the QD engage yeah. QD uh but it still flopped and um and right and then then after that they would they would release this uh a uh, kind of app that was that was sort of an in, in phone gaming system. Yeah,
0: it was getting away from that physical form factor that had burned them so badly. Uh
1: huh. But, um, but it, it would even abandon that in yeah. another, in another few years. As, as app stores became things, they realized that having a, a specific gaming app wasn't as useful.
0: Yeah. So 2004, this is where we see one of the big influential players get into the space finally. Yeah. Sony. Yeah. With the, where have you been, Sony? <laughs> yeah. They, they had been developing the PlayStation Portable or PSP. Uh, they launched it in Japan in December 2004. It didn't get over into the United States and, uh, and Europe until the next year. Uh,
1: of course, being Sony at the time, it did not use cartridges or, or even flashcards. Right. It went straight for optical discs.
0: Which, you're like, what? <laughs> I mean, you know, when you think about it, it's a real challenge to make any kind of portable device that uses optical discs because any kind of oh, jostling. It's so bouncy, right. Yeah. It's
1: gonna... It's gonna,
0: yeah. The the, the laser can't read the laser, of yeah. course,
1: yeah. And and these these are those those little mini optical discs. They look like a little
0: yeah universal media discs, right. UMDs, right? Yeah. In this case, they did a really good job at designing it so that you you know, unless you were particularly rough with your PSP, uh, or you were you know maybe going down a, a dirt road, perhaps you're a good old boy, never meaning no harm. Uh, then you might have some issues, but otherwise, you know, it's pretty smooth. Uh, it had connectivity to the Internet. You could connect to other PSPs. You could uh, connect to consoles. Right, right. Um, pretty pretty good machine. I mean, I I remember getting the chance to play on them. Again, I didn't own one of these. <laughs> Boy, that's just the story of my life here. I'm like, I'm actually craving some of these now. Uh, I can see why collectors get so passionate about this oh, hobby. Sure. Yeah, we, we looked at a lot of different collections while we were pulling together the information for this podcast. And there are a lot of people out there who have huge collections of handheld gaming devices.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Um, a- another cool thing about this because, you know, because it was a Sony property, um, it, you, you, you could watch Sony films on these little mini discs. Yep. Uh, in, in the correct aspect ratio.
0: Yeah, 16.9 aspect ratio. So mm-hmm. it wasn't that four three, which the old television sets were. Mm-hmm. Now, this is that widescreen format. So you didn't have the little black bars on the top and bottom. It actually would play in full view on the screen uh, in the native aspect ratio. That it was, it was a really, really smart idea. And it also was kind of, again, they, they, they were predicting how we were going to be using mobile devices to consume media. They were ahead of the game on this one. And it did pretty well. You know, it, it still wasn't really catching up to Nintendo's domination of the market, but they, they weren't hurting either.
1: Oh, certainly not. Uh, although it did not help their case that 2004 was the same year that Nintendo released their DS.
0: Oh, yes. Another incredibly popular game platform. Now, this was where they would said, you know, that Game Boy that we've been making, It's taken us a long way, and I think it's pretty much gone as far as it can go. We need to take the next step. We need to go uh, a big jump beyond what the Game Boy can do. And that's when they came out with the DS. And the the innovative thing about the DS was something that we talked about from way back in the '80s on that Game and Watch series, the multi-screen series. Oh uh,
1: uh, right, right. It had it had these two screens, and one of them was uh, was was touch capable. Yeah,
0: so you could actually have a touch capable part on uh, that you're you're playing actively on, and a second screen that could be displaying whatever else it needed to. Uh, you could also create games that didn't use the touchscreen at all but used both screens so that you could move your character between one or the other i mean
1: that... all, all kinds of different options yeah. and, and some of the games that came out for this were so innovative and i think that that's one of the the huge selling points of it it was that independent library or, or not independent but just just individual library of games that you couldn't get anywhere else
0: absolutely and so you know the psp although it was an incredibly powerful device and 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 if you were to look at the specs it outstripped the the Nintendo entirely oh, by far, but Nintendo sold more than PSP. In fact, uh, it would according to at least some uh, estimates, it was a two to one ratio, Oof. twice as many Nintendo DSs sold as PSPs. Wow! Uh, it had uh, half the screen resolution, <laughs> <laughs> or just about.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, and and like an eighth of the onboard RAM I, yeah. that was expandable via via slot, but, yeah. but nonetheless, and. Uh, I, yeah, it, it did. It did. I'm not sure how the PSP connected to the Internet, but the I, I know that the DS had Wi-Fi built in, which yep. for 2004 was was pretty impressive.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wi-Fi was uh yeah, having something that could could connect to Wi-Fi was uh, a big advantage, although uh, the Wi-Fi was still fairly young in those early days. Like not everyone had a Wi-Fi router. Uh, At that time, a lot of people were using, you know, wired connections. I know I was using wired connections for quite some time. Oh, yeah, yeah. Probably about 2007 or so. Well, on top of that, Nintendo would end up updating the DS line, which is, you know, kind of similar to what they did with the Game Boy. They came out with things like the DS Lite. In this case, it's L-I-T-E. The DSi, which had a larger display and front and rear cameras. But uh, unfortunately, at that point, there was no more Game Boy Advance compatibility built into the device. Then eventually the DSi XL, which had the largest screens of that line uh, ever. And so, um, you know, that's a an interesting development here. We once again see Nintendo really having a stranglehold on the dominance of the, the handheld market. But Sony is doing a great job. And, you know, that's their first foray into the handheld gaming. Hey, guys, Jonathan from 2021 now. Technically, it's 2020 when I record this. Man, time is... Time is hard, right? I'm going to take a quick break uh, and listen to a couple of ads while I, I suss this out. Uh, come with me. All right. So now, Lauren, we talked about we talked about the engage and how that was a massive flop. Surely there are no more high profile massive flops in the handheld gaming history are there?
1: Well, you referred to one right before the ad break, so I think I think it's pretty likely. But yes, uh the Tiger Telematics released the Gizmondo yeah. in 2005, and I can't believe that something with that cool of a name could possibly flop.
0: Yeah, I know. With a word, with a name like Gizmondo, the sky is the limit. Come on, Gizmondo. Now, originally it was called the Game Track, but that's not nearly as cool as Gizmondo. Gizmondo. So, <laughs> I like that it's coming out like, Fernando. <laughs> Gizmondo. <laughs> uh, so yeah, they showed off a prototype of this device back at CES 2004, and this one is an interesting game system to me. Partly because of the operating system it used.
1: Yeah, it was, it was Windows based. It, yeah. Windows CE 4.2 to be specific. Right. And so, I mean, it was the
0: first handheld gaming device to actually use the Windows platform as its native operating
1: system. And, and, and partially due to that, it was also kind of hopping on to the, to the very tail end of, of that sort of PDA. Trend, yeah. or, or maybe that was over, but but just people were thinking a lot more about combining different features into devices at this juncture, and uh, so so it also had a, a camera and GPS and texting capabilities, yep. SMS and uh, and Bluetooth, Bluetooth, yep. right?
0: Mm-hmm. All of those things, and so you think, wow, this thing is packed. Why didn't it sell incredibly well? Part of that reason was because uh, well, there were two different flavors of Gizmondo that you could purchase.
1: Uh, the, the first one that came out was $400.
0: Yes, that was unsubsidized, $400. And when you when I say unsubsidized, you may say, what do you mean? What was the subsidized version? Oh,
1: it's because when the that the first one didn't sell basically at all, they came out with an ad-supported version.
0: Yeah, for $229. Uh, still didn't do well. And in fact, at, within 11 months of the product launching, the company goes bankrupt. Yeah. And it was one of, one of those devices that initially got a lot of people excited, but the longer the saga went, the more skepticism was involved. And by the time it launched, I think a lot of people felt exactly the opposite of how they had when, you know, it was just a, a, an idea and not an actual product. So, uh, both the Gizmondo and the aforementioned Engage are frequently found on
1: worst console lists ever like worst console ever yeah, yeah. not just worst handhelds not like yeah, yeah. No, no
0: like this is going up against you know those video game consoles that would come out and have three games and then disappear forever <laughs> uh, these were way up there and part of it is because they were really expensive they ended up uh, costing companies you know in this case it cost a company its existence mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's it's tough. You know, it's one of those things you don't want to see it happen. There's some schadenfreude there, I'm sure, but you don't want to see that ever happen to anybody.
1: Oh, sure. Uh, although. OK, so so strangely enough, the, the next entry on our on our list, which would turn into a, a huge um, I hate the word disruptor. I think it's overused, but disruptor in the market yeah. um, was was another multi-use device. And yep. I'm talking about the iPhone introduced by Apple in 2007. Yeah.
0: So when it first came out, it just looked like an amazing device. I don't think any of us had uh, the inkling of how disruptive it was going to be until the app development really started to open up and people began to make games specifically for the iPhone.
1: Uh, Sure, sure. I mean, of course, the iPhone is not a handheld gaming device, except for the part where you can use it like one. Yeah, you can have it's a
0: handheld device that can play games. Right. So it's really a multi-use device. But the, the point here is that it had And it continues to have a really big influence on the handheld gaming industry as a whole. Because you've got some consumers out there who say, well, I could buy this single-use device. Even if it can play multiple games, it's still just a game device. Or I can buy this thing that's also a phone and an interactive map and lets me connect to the Internet and et cetera, et cetera. So it's one of those that has really started to take a big bite out of the mobile gaming world. Now, there are different markets, and some of those markets are more attuned to those gaming devices than to the smartphone world. So it's not that handheld gaming devices are now irrelevant. You know, it's not like they're they're going obsolete, but they're having a tougher time now yeah, that this yeah. has come on here. And and
1: we will we will talk more about that um in, in the the very end of our podcast as we get into the current years. But um yeah. But for now, let's let's talk about. Th- this is a really interesting one to me. Uh, this came out in two thousand nine and it was the game Gp two x Wiz.
0: yeah, the Gp two x Wiz is one of those open source handheld gaming systems. It was actually made so that people could fiddle around with all the different uh, programming for it and create all sorts of applications and games. Uh, again, kind of going back... Independently, yeah. It's yeah.
1: designed for independent developers and, and emulators, even.
0: Right, right. This is going back to that same one we talked about, the, the Korean game system we talked about right. earlier. This is kind of similar to that. It had a 4, 533 megahertz processor, so it was, you know, packing a bit of a wallop for an open source system. Sure. And, uh, yeah, it was... Uh, yeah. Also had really awesome packaging. I mean, I, I looked at the packaging. <laughs> it looks like this, this kind of leather bound sort of box that says the whiz on it. And I, I thought, I want. I kind of just want the box at this point. It
1: was, it was really sleek. And, um, and, and I think that 2009 was, was one of those peaks of emulator use that, yeah. that we've, that we've, you know, it's, it, it's a, it's an undulating wave of, of people who don't really mind kind of pirating games. Well, in
0: some cases, it's people who want to have access to old titles that are no longer supported.
1: Oh, sure. Uh, and, and especially at this particular time point before a lot of studios had begun creating legal ports of their games for, for app stores. Because right. app stores were not in 2009 what they are today right. at all. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So so that was it. it was it was filling a, a piece of the market that.
0: Yeah. The, otherwise, that was really it was going, quite clever. Yeah. Right? It was going unserved at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For example, the, the now you can get ports of classic arcade games, uh, delivered to like an iPad. You know, mm-hmm. you can get their apps just for that. But at the time, that really wasn't that wasn't something you would find. So Nintendo in 2011 not content to sit back upon its haunches and cackle maniacally releases the 3DS which uh, i was at the E3 where the 3DS debuted oh yeah yeah uh it was a you know the when it debuted it definitely got a lot of attention because people thought this is it's a brand new handheld from nintendo which automatically made it really interesting uh-huh. uh, it also had this 3d capability uh the 3d capability was was nifty but also one of those things that people were skeptical about because 3d has traditionally been a really been a diff- gimmick. it's yeah it's been hard to get into the consumer market right uh
1: sure sure although you know gl- glasses free 3D is yeah. is always more um dynamic i think to to the consumer market than than glasses yeah you don't, 3D,
0: when you don't have so. to yeah you don't have to keep track of yet another piece of equipment
1: uh, right right uh, uh, yeah. although of course it could also play games in 2D you didn't yeah. have to play them in 3D it
0: had a special camera where you could take 3D pictures but you could only view them on the 3DS obviously uh sure uh It was neat and also had some um, augmented reality uh, features to it. I didn't put that in the notes, but I remember getting to play with that where you you got like a little card Uh and it had uh, a symbol from Mario, like it might have one of the question mark blocks. And you put it down on a table and you hold the camera to it and you activate the correct app on the 3DS because it wasn't just, you know, magically recognizing it. But with the right app, it would then have a little virtual character pop up on the picture of the whatever card was that you had put down.
1: Uh, On the screen, right? Right.
0: Yeah, so on the screen, it looks like there's an actual physical character walking around on your table, uh, if you were to actually look without using the 3DS, you would think the person was crazy, but, <laughs> um, but it was really kind of a cool little gimmick. Uh, they'd also update this in 2012 as the 3DS XL. I bet you can guess what that means.
1: <laughs> um, it, it didn't perform nearly as well as the company was kind of anticipating at first. And, and they would, they would slash the, the price after it had only been on the market for a couple of months. Yeah. It
0: was actually when I heard that. I thought at first it had to be a mistake. Right. Because Nintendo is Nintendo. not known for doing that. Yeah,
1: yeah, they they usually are very aware of what they want a price to be and and are very savvy about what what the market will handle. Um but but sales did start to pick up over time and and eventually it would it would do really pretty well. Um yeah. certainly much better than the Wii U which would launch the following year.
0: Yeah. So again this is one of those long tail kind of approaches and uh and part of that i think was the fact that the games for the 3DS started to get more and more sophisticated sure and mm-hmm. that helped a lot also that same year in 2011 sony comes out with a couple of things that were big news one was the Xperia Play i remember that at the E3 as well people uh, were calling it originally the PlayStation phone
1: yeah uh, yeah because this was another like like the failed engage a uh, uh, phone plus handheld gaming system.
0: Yeah. It used Android OS originally, uh, two, well, not originally, 2.3, which is, uh, gingerbread. It was supposed to get an upgrade to ice cream sandwich, which is Android 4.0. However, Sony did some tests on the phone. So Sony Ericsson, really, I should say, cause that's the company that actually made the phone, the, you know, sub company under Sony. Uh, Sony Ericsson made, the phone tested it under Android 4.0 Ice Cream Sandwich and found out that it was not very stable. So they ultimately decided to keep it at 2.3, which disappointed some consumers.
1: Uh, the same year, Sony also launched the PlayStation Vita.
0: Which is much more successful than the <laughs> Xperia Play. Uh, yeah, flagship handheld device. It's essentially the replacement for the PlayStation Portable, the PSP. So Vita has an ARM-based two gigahertz processor. So it's got some serious firepower under the hood compared to other handheld devices. I know if you're, you know, talking about your mega awesome gaming PC at home, two gigahertz sounds like nothing. <laughs> but for a handheld device at this time, it was really pretty powerful. Uh, and it was also one of the big features that they they touted when they launched the Vita was how it could interact with PlayStation Home consoles. Uh, it had two thumbsticks for control had a lot of buttons had directional pad as well, had Wi-Fi and Bluetooth capability. And you could also get a, a more expensive one that had 3G capability. Of course, you'd have to get a contract with that. Oh, right. All right, guys, we've got a little bit more to say about the history of handheld gaming. But first, let's take another quick break. You can't plug in a PSP game and play it it's not compatible in that sense.
1: Uh but you could download PSP games.
0: Yes, so you could purchase PSP games for download and play them on the Vita that way. So as a digital download as opposed to reading the optical disc the UMD from the old PSPs. And the launch price was $250 although it has since dropped in price. So you can you can buy one for less than that now.
1: That is when we started getting into um uh, gaming tablets.
0: Yeah. Which, you know, again, like you could look at something like the iPad and you can play games on the iPad. Uh, right. But, but this it, was a more devoted device. Yes. A, was, a couple of these were more devoted. Yes. Yeah, definitely marketed as gaming devices as opposed to this is a general purpose tablet that can mm-hmm. also play games. Right. So yeah, the Arcos Gamepad is one of those, another Android based game and also open source. So this one, if you were to look at one, it looks like a tablet that's had two controller like handle things fused on the side. We'll be talking about another one in a second, but it's the, the Razer Edge, but that one's a little different. I'll get to that in a minute. So these look like it's actually part of the case itself. Um, and they had thumbsticks, directional pad, buttons on those little, the, the little game controllers that are fused onto it. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was a pretty powerful device. And the fact that it's open source is another one of those things that developers really love because they have the chance to make stuff without having to jump through any hoops. Um, you know, like some of the other companies, like Nintendo, for example, uh, obviously they want to have a good control on quality. Oh, sure. Because they learned that valuable lesson from way back in 1983 with the video game crash that uh-huh. if you don't control quality, you flood the market with crappy stuff and then you suffer for it. Well, um, you know, the uh, the downside to that is that if you're a little independent developer, you may not have the resources that you would need to make a game for that kind of platform. So this is a very uh, attractive alternative.
1: Oh sure, and also at the time, game development for mobile platforms was was in a crazy boom. Um, yeah. In fact, according to digital market analysis company App Annie, uh, global iOS App Store game expenditures overtook in in 2012 handheld console game expenditures overall. So so the amount of money being spent on on ios games was way more or, yeah. or, or maybe not way more but but it was it was it was edging out the handheld game system that's that's
0: big news and again another one of those things where the handheld game industry has to take notice and and say we have to acknowledge that this oh exists.
1: sure especially after google play expenditures would do the same thing in early 2013
0: yeah yeah and yeah that's 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 pretty eye opening also in 2013 that's when razor released the razor edge another gaming tablet that right. i got to see at a CES uh
1: this one run on uh windows 8 yeah so or that, runs i guess it currently
0: still exists yes it does uh, it does still exist windows 8 so it's a windows 8 machine um and you know again another one of those that that kind of splits off from the crowd it's not android or uh its own proprietary system and has an intel processor uh, depending upon which one you get it might be an i5 or an i7 and, uh, you know, it is high-resolution, high-performance gaming tablet. It also had a, a snap-on kind of case. And the snap-on case had handles on either side that had additional controls to it. So it kind of looks like you're holding a steering wheel that's missing the top and bottom. And the center of the steering wheel, instead of it being the horn, is the screen of the tablet, right? So you could actually use this and have a game that uses the orientation of the tablet as a control, like a driving game, and then you steer with the two control sticks that you have, or the control sticks also had, you know, thumbsticks, buttons, regular directional buttons, etc., etc., etc. Yeah, I got to play with one of these at CES. It was actually as funny because it was, funny, it was uh, as I recall, Razer originally would just have a representative holding the the Razer Edge and showing it off, or it was inside a case, and so that was as close as you could get. But the longer you stayed at CES, the less they seemed to care. <laughs> so if you happened to walk up on the last day and say, "Can I, can I take a closer look at that?" They would hand it to you. <laughs> You're yeah. Like, wow, this is pretty <laughs> awesome. I need to remember to book my stay to come at the end of CES, and not the beginning of CES. But, uh, yeah, so it was neat. Again, it was pretty high. It's like a high price uh, uh-huh. item. It's not one of those that. Uh, I don't think that it's necessarily done a huge
1: amount of business. Uh, yeah, and it's gotten some flack for being gimmicky for what it is. I yeah. mean, you know, for for being as expensive as it is, having a relatively low capacity for what it does.
0: Right. And and again, like you were saying, I think around this time we're talking about uh, mobile games just taking off.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the, the amounts of money that people were spending on mo- mobile games had been doubling or even quadrupling year over year. Handheld gaming was was also still climbing in sales, but by less than ten percent year over year. Right. Um, and and by th- by this point, I, I mentioned that that in 2012, iOS game expenditures had had edged out handheld. Uh, they were far and away doing the best by this like point. Leaving in, time. Them in the dust. In absolutely in the dust. Um yeah. And w- one of the advantages I think for for mobile games here is that they seem to be way less seasonal, way less like a treat or a special occasion Mm. kind of purchase than handheld games tend to be.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can I can imagine like it being a real impulse buy. For one thing, the entire experience is digital, right? You're not buying a physical uh Art, like a cartridge. You or never have to think
1: about walking into a store or going to Amazon or whatever.
0: And yeah. granted, a lot of the handheld devices these days work on that same principle. But uh, but the smartphones just had an advantage because that's how they always had done it. Right. So uh, also in 2013, that's when NVIDIA released the Shield, another one of those devices I got to see at CES. And another one I got to hold after sticking around long enough. Um, this one looks a lot like an Xbox controller that has a clamshell screen kind of welded onto it. Although, you know, you can open and close the screen. It's not like it's stuck in place.
1: Uh Uh, Uh-huh. A touchscreen, by the way.
0: Yeah, it is touchscreen. And it can run Android games. So if you ever wanted to play an Android game using an actual Xbox controller, you could totally do that. uh And I shouldn't say it's an Xbox controller. It just looks like one. Oh, right. Um, but it also, uh, it also could run streaming games that you're streaming from a PC. Oh, cool. Yeah, right, right. So yeah, you run like a PC game, but you want to be able to play it in the living room or you want to lay down in bed and play this game. You don't want to, and you don't want to take your Alienware enormous desktop computer to bed with you because it would set the sheets on fire. So you have the Nvidia Shield instead and just stream the content directly to your game. Uh, to your, uh, to your device. And so, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. The launch price was $300, which a lot of people kind of, you know, balked at. Uh, it is now down to $250. So it, they, they have cut the price on it. Uh, again, one of those devices that I think has its devoted followers, but it's a niche market.
1: Sure, uh, 2013 was, was a good year for downgrading, really. Uh, Nintendo released the 2DS that year, which is a scaled down version of the 3DS. Yeah, it's 1D less.
0: (laughs) Yeah, also, uh, doesn't, like, when I first heard of the 2DS, I just imagined that it was a 3DS that had the 3D stuff removed. But in fact, the form factor itself is a little different. Instead of it being a clamshell, it looks, it looks like a tablet that has well, Two screens. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. One screen mounted on top of another with a divider in between.
1: uh uh-huh. And it was marketed to, to a younger audience. I mean, it was definitely its own separate product. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I know that there are people who question Nintendo's strategy with that, but I mean it was really you know when you look at how the Nintendo 3DS initially performed, you could understand the the impetus behind those sort of decisions.
1: Uh sure. And Nintendo was also struggling pretty hard in, in this general time, um, they you know the the Wii U was basically a flop. And uh they, they merged their console and handheld teams that year in order to just give anyone a boost. <laughs> they yeah. were they were pretty desperate. Yep,
0: yep. And also uh this most recent E3 was when we started seeing companies like Microsoft and Sony show off the interoperability between tablets and their their new consoles, the Xbox One and the PlayStation 4. The idea being that you could use a tablet to play a, a play along with a game that's already in the, uh, going on in some other format. Uh, yeah,
1: to have a second screen for mini games or yeah. side information or. Or
0: you have just a totally different, um, a totally different function to fulfill in a team. Or, right, right. So the one that I kept on seeing over and over again was, let's say it's a squad based kind of game where you've got Four or five people playing on an Xbox on their Xbox One with their controllers and everything, and then you have another member who's using the tablet as a tactical uh, kind of interface. So they're coordinating. They're saying, "Okay, uh, you know, Unit Bravo, you need to advance 200 feet and then turn left." You know, so they could actually kind of be extra set of eyes, which I thought was a really cool idea. I have yet to see that in action. In a way that really has grabbed me, but I love the, I love the concept. Yeah, it just I, needs
1: a really good uh, application. Yeah, it has to come to have along that, that it.
0: killer app. It's mm-hmm. gotta have that killer app. So yeah, uh, this is kind of bringing us up to today. We talked about how Nintendo's been really kind of struggling. There's been rumors about them getting into some form of uh, partnerships with Phones?
1: Uh yeah. They're so, so they've been operating at a loss for a solid two years in a row, as of as of when we're recording this podcast in twenty fourteen, mm. um late February twenty fourteen to be specific. Um and it's it's sounding like they're they're considering developing like device hardware that will help link their handheld and console markets and focusing on that rather than trying to port their games and and characters uh to existing smartphone experiences
0: yeah nintendo has a reputation for really wanting to control everything about the experience so i can understand why they would be reluctant to say license their characters or to port their games over to a platform they don't have control over which is what would happen if they created you know super mario for ios uh it doesn't stop people from trying to create clone games of it but certainly not
1: and emulators do exist
0: yeah but you can understand why Nintendo says, no, we want to be able to make sure that our players have the best experience possible. Now, you can debate on whether or not you know, how successful they are in their own right on doing that. But there's no debate on the fact that if you don't have control of the platform, you can't make that guarantee at all. Sure. sure. So that's their idea. And then also finally kind of wrapping this up, some of the most recent news. You have this about a, a Samsung uh, uh device, right?
1: Uh right, it's called the GamePad, right? Right now I think it's only in Germany and Korea, but they're planning on rolling it out worldwide, I believe. It's a it's a Bluetooth smartphone accessory, uh which I think is really interesting because yeah. because again going back to the fact that mobile apps are really overtaking other forms of handheld gaming, and it lets you it lets you dock your device in in this controller plus screen holder thing. You mm. you're not literally Docking, Right, you're not connecting your controller. You're not connecting the device to this stuff. Just only via Bluetooth. Only via Bluetooth, yeah. right. Um, And and it turns your phone into a handheld Android-based gaming system. You, you can use... Any Android-based phone or many Android-based phones anyway, as long as they have appropriate Bluetooth connectivity, they don't just have to be Samsung's. Right. Um and, and and there are plenty of other products on the market that have done similar stuff. I know that like Logitech has one for for iOS's um or, or iPhones mm-hmm. specifically. Uh it would have to be much larger to accommodate
0: a iPad. iPad. Yeah. Um
1: but it, i I just thought it was interesting that it was being offered buy a device company and and therefore kind of being this entry into the market that's like, hey, uh, yeah, maybe ig- ignore those handheld gaming <laughs> devices over there and really just turn turn your phone into your new gaming device. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And especially if that means they can get in on the peripheral side and not have the the burden of producing a full handheld system that could totally tank in the marketplace.
1: Oh, sure. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and it's only I think it's only like 90 bucks or, or thereabouts in, mm. in the equivalent Euro.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. So, so we might see that expand beyond. And, uh, it'll be interesting to see how handheld gaming progresses from here. There are a lot of people who still predict that smartphones will essentially obliterate handheld gaming. And the only, the only people that will, or the only companies that remain will be the open source ones that are they're catering to a very specific niche audience. So they're doing it on a much more modest basis. They're not, they're not producing millions and millions of units. They might be producing maybe a hundred thousand. But, uh, we'll have to see because.
1: Yeah, I could, I don't know. I, I could see some systems kind of, kind of going away, but I would be really personally sad if Nintendo didn't have a, an, an active handheld on the market.
0: Yeah. Well, especially seeing as how they've struggled so much with the, the home. With the consoles. Consoles. Yeah. yeah recently. So in, anyway, that is the history of the handheld electronic gaming device. Like we said, we didn't mention. In everything that's out there. Certainly
1: not. Uh, if we missed one of your favorites...
0: Here's what you can do. You can send us a message and say, Hey, Lauren and Jonathan, I know you didn't have time to mention X handheld gaming console, but it's really cool, and here's why. And here's a picture of me with my X gaming console, and here's a list of my favorite games for X gaming console. That's the way to do it. Don't say, You guys are stupid because you didn't mention the... Blah, blah, blah. Yeah,
1: that's that's the email equivalent of um, unplugging someone's controller when they're in the middle of a really good bout of, yeah
0: like like punch out. And that wraps up that classic episode of Tech Stuff. Hope you guys enjoyed it. I do hope that I can go back and revisit this, maybe do another uh, entry into the series. Or, you know, I, I tend to do things a little differently now than I did a few years ago. So maybe I'll even like take a much deeper dive into handheld gaming. Who knows? If you guys have interest in that, or if there's some other topic you would love for me to cover on Tech Stuff, reach out and let me know. The best way to do that is over on Twitter, where we use the handle TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon.